Hi, I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. Richard Norton Smith's new one-volume biography of President Gerald Ford was more than 10 years in the making. This week, we talk with the noted presidential historian about Ford's efforts to heal the country following the Watergate scandal and about his controversial decision to pardon Richard Nixon. Smith also shares stories about Ford's personal life, his political ambition, and his post-presidential years. Our conversation will begin in just a moment. Richard Norton Smith, presidential historian. First of all, I want to say welcome back to C-SPAN. It's, <laughs> it's, it's nice been to be since here. before COVID that we've had you it in. It has been a while. Yeah. A long time relationship with us, so yeah. it's good to see you again. Thank you. Uh, we've been working on a biography of Gerald Ford for a long time, 812 pages. What do readers get in it? A surprising portrait in many ways. Uh, two ways of defining surprising. There are a lot of factual revelations in the book that I'm sort of surprised. I mean, he was personally blackballed by J. Edgar Hoover as a young man when he applied to be an FBI agent, despite glowing recommendations, because Hoover found out that Ford had been involved with America First at, at uh, Yale. Um, he spent more time at Yale than he did at the University of Michigan. That's surprising. He knew about Spiro Agnew's legal problems at least six months before he ever acknowledged it. And the interesting thing is, which means the White House knew earlier than they acknowledged it, he was interested in replacing Agnew. Ford was a much more ambitious figure than the good old Jerry persona that, you know, he wanted to be Richard Nixon's running mate in 1960. So there, there are a lot of, oh, discovered late in the process, just before he left the presidency, he was approached by Bill Simon, who was the Secretary of the Treasury, about a pardon for John Mitchell the Nixon attorney general and campaign manager who of course went to jail for his part in the Watergate affair and uh, Ford turned him down. And I think, I don't think it was because of, you know, any sort of aftermath of the Nixon pardon. Quite simply, Ford had been taught as a very young man by his mother to, to look for the good in everyone. And that led some people to see him as naive. Um, the other side of the coin though was just as he was honest with people, he expected them to be honest with him. Two days after the Watergate break-in, Ford confronted Mitchell one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, did any of you know anything about this? Or did the president know anything about this? And of course, Mitchell denied it. And Ford said later on, um, that damn guy lied to my face. And that was something you didn't do. So there was, there was never gonna be a, a so there are, there are a lot of those kinds of factual discoveries. But in a larger sense, the surprise is, historically, um, I think Ford went to his grave believing what most of us believed, which was that his historical legacy would be seen as his efforts uh, to restore an element of trust uh, to the American presidency after Watergate and Vietnam and all the, the tumult of the, of the 60s as well as the 70s. Uh, and of course, he also understood that the first line of his historical obit would describe him as America's only unelected president and the man who gave Richard Nixon a pardon. But here's the, the surprise, <laughs> is 40, almost 50 years on, with the perspective that comes with time, with the access to papers and oral histories, and, and, and not least of all, eight successive presidencies 
that you can compare against Ford. It turns out that Ford was much more of an initiator than he was a caretaker. A couple quick examples. Economic deregulation that we take for granted today. We may argue about it, but it's hard to talk to a young person today and imagine there was a time when bureaucrats in Washington decided where a plane could fly or what a truck could carry or where you could get a home mortgage. All of that began under Ford. And then, of course, the Carter and Reagan administrations, in a bipartisan way, picked up on it. Today, we take it for granted, but it, it transformed the American economy. In the summer of 1975, he signed something called the Helsinki Accords, for which he was severely criticized, both from the left and the right. It was seen at the time as a concession to the Soviets uh, acknowledging their empire in Eastern Europe. Only now, <clears throat> after the Cold War, and access to a whole lot of documents that we didn't know before, do we realize that Helsinki was actually a, a real milestone on the road that led to the collapse of the Soviet Union? And, and there are other, I mean, there are other, uh, New York City fiscal crisis, you know, Ford City dropped dead, famous headline, probably cost him New York and the presidency in 76. Uh, the great irony, <laughs> Hugh Carey, who was the Democratic governor of New York, and the Ford sparring partner in public throughout, the, throughout all that, voted for Ford against his own party's nominee in 1976 and told me, you know, Jerry Ford's never gotten the credit he deserved for what was, in effect, a tough love policy toward New York City. So, I mean, there's just a whole lot of things that either we thought we knew um, you know, it was Ford's <laughs> misfortune to, to be in the White House when Saturday Night Live went on the air in October of 1975. And I think there, there are a whole lot of people who, whose first memory, if you mention the name Gerald Ford, they, they don't think of Gerald Ford, they think of Chevy Chase falling down as Gerald Ford. Well, that's part of the collective memory. Um, but it turns out to be superseded by the reality. So you served as director of the Ford Presidential Library, and you also gave the eulogies at both the president and first lady's funeral. You write in the at the end of the book that you had some hesitations about being able to be uh, distant enough in doing this project. How did you work that out? Yeah, it's interesting. It's a great question. I'm glad you asked that because um, I never doubted my capacity to be objective. I mean, I've written about a lot of people, um, and critics, whatever they thought of what I was doing, have tended to acknowledge that I was, um, quote, objective, whatever you mean. My concern was that um, other people would not accept me as an objective disinterest. I remember David Kennelly, the great Pulitzer Prize winning photographer, who really became a member of the Ford family, and, and he knew them far better than I did, um, said, if you're not critical, you're not credible. And the interesting thing about that is I knew the Fords well enough to know that they would share that, that view. So anyway, I, I, I brought this up. I had a lunch with David McCullough, the late, great David McCullough, at his beloved Hay Adams Hotel. And um, I described the situation. And, you know, other people, Doris Kearns Goodwin writing about LBJ, you know, or John Meacham writing about George H.W. Bush. But I, I described my predicament. And David, being David, said, write what you know. And of course, the irony there is 
that was a license for me to spend the next 10 years discovering all the things I didn't know about Ford. Um, in any event, it, um, oh, well, it's obviously up to the reader to decide how objective I am. Two questions out of that story. First of all, with mentioning David McCullough, his book was probably responsible for a revisiting of Harry Truman. Yeah. There's lots of Harry Truman connections that yeah. people make to the Ford presidency. Do you anticipate or probably hope that this will do the same for you know, Ford? I'm not supposed to answer that question. <laughs> I'm supposed to, you know, it's like people say, have you written the definitive biography? <laughs> well, you know, that's what you aspire to, but you're, you're, you're supposed to leave that to other people. Um, it's interesting, um, there are parallels. Uh, Ford's first act as president. Presidents define themselves in lots of ways, but one way they define themselves is which presidents they choose to honor by hanging their portraits in the cabinet room. And in the first hour of his presidency, you know, Ford goes into the cabinet room and uh, Dwight Eisenhower is in the place of honor. Um, but then Richard Nixon's interesting, two great progressive era heroes, Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson, uh, round out the room. Well, Ford saw to it that T.R. and Wilson were replaced with Lincoln, who was a lifelong hero, and Harry Truman which surprised a lot of people, but actually you stop to think, you know, they were both you know, children of Capitol Hill, um, both what I, I like to call charismatically challenged, uh, but they were not great orators, um, but because they had spent so much time um, on Capitol Hill, they knew government, the, the governing process. Harry Truman, was the last American president before Ford who could get up in front of a room full of reporters and introduce the annual federal budget because he knew it backwards. In early 1976, to be perfectly blunt, the campaign advisors around Ford had a unique conundrum. How do we demonstrate to doubting voters that this guy's really smart? And they hit on this Hail Mary. And needless to say, the federal government was a whole lot bigger than it was in Harry Truman's day. And it was a really risky thing to do. But Ford said, I, I'd like to do that. I think that would be a good idea. So they got there were like 500 people in the State Department auditorium. And Ford gets up and says, it's going to be a little different this year. And he gave a little talk. And then he threw it open to questions. There were 56 questions, all of which he was able to answer. Um, he didn't need help from any of the experts, you know, behind him. The, 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 the problem, problem is, in some ways, that's one reason why he looks better and better in retrospect than he did at the time. Um, he wasn't eloquent like FDR. He wasn't witty like Ronald Reagan. But he knew, he knew government inside out. So... Uh I, I want us to get one topical thing out of the way yeah. because we got lots of time to talk about his biography, and that is the connection between, if there is one, between yeah. Gerald Ford's pardon of Richard Nixon, his concerns about Leon Jaworski, the special prosecutor, yeah. actually putting him on trial, and what the country's going through today with Donald Trump. Yeah, no, it's it's a fair question. I I, I do take some umbrage, I guess, at, at the kind of hindsight that implicitly blames Ford for the wrongdoing of subsequent presidents. Um, put Trump aside for the moment. 
fascinating to me. One of the things that sort of will surprise people is the relationship between the Fords and the Clintons. And Ford always believed that Ford justified the Nixon pardon not as an act of mercy, per se, although that's how it was, quite frankly, portrayed at the time, and he was um, sort of a willing participant in that. Uh, but it was less about forgiving Nixon than trying to forget him, trying to refocus the country's attention on all of these problems that Ford is just discovering for himself. You have an economy that's headed south. You've got a NATO alliance that's fraying badly. I mean, Portugal already has a communist government. I mean, on and on. We were still in Southeast Asia, uh, you know. And, um, and Ford <laughs> is in this job that he never aspired to, for which he couldn't prepare, obviously. And he finds himself spending 25% of his time day after day after day on Nixon's tapes, Nixon's papers. For whatever it's worth, Ford personally believed that, that if the illegal process were allowed to proceed, that Nixon would be indicted um, and probably convicted, at least on charges of obstruction of justice. Um, he was the only, well, no, he wasn't the only person. One of the things I discovered, um, he had a, a counsel who was a best friend, early law partner, a guy named Phil Buchan. And Phil Buchan's wife, Bunny, made diary notes. And for the first time, you were actually inside the Oval Office when Ford first explains to Phil Buchan his intent to pardon Nixon. And basically, it's Phil Buchan's job to go out and find the legal precedent for this. Um, When the Clinton-Lewinsky business came along, Ford felt in some ways vindicated in the sense that we lost a year. People forget we lost a whole year, 1998, much of 99, um, because the two sides were so entrenched. And remember, Ford came up with a proposal to sort of short circuit the whole impeachment. There would be not a censure what he called a rebuke, because the censure could be undone. Andrew Jackson went through that. And the idea was, he, he talked about a unique punishment for unique crime um, or unique offense. There'd be a joint session of Congress. President Clinton uh, would be summoned. And before that joint session, without saying anything, except accepting silently a rebuke. And then everyone could go back to work. And anyway, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a whole long story. But the, but the point is, we now know that Bill Clinton was seriously thinking about spending some of his political capital to tackle entitlements. And not least all because he wanted to be a near great president. Um, think of how that would have changed the political, cultural, economic climate in this country and the, and the whole debate you know, ever since. But it didn't happen because there was no one who was in a position to, in effect, pull the plug. Well, Ford was in a position to pull the plug. It meant falling on the sword, and in all likelihood, it probably cost him the 1976 election. So if you want to, you know, to, to in effect, blame Ford, 
in a unique set of circumstances. N nobody in August 1974 thought that this was a precedent. I mean, nobody thought, everyone thought Watergate was an absolute historical aberration, that Richard Nixon was in some ways a historical aberration. Um, you know, we don't elect our presidents for their clairvoyance. We elect them because, among other things, they are willing and able to make tough decisions that may have serious negative uh, political consequences for them in the short term, but which hopefully at some point down the road, historians will reassess uh, more favorably. Our Q&A conversation will be right back after this short break. Wanted to put a little bit of video. We, there's so much, and we, we have only an hour with you. But we have a clip from his pardoning of Ford uh, that he delivered a speech on September 8th, 1974, the day that you said his, his honeymoon ended. Yes. <laughs> his consensus presidency went away after one month yeah. on this date. But let's uh, listen to how he explained it to the nation. This is just about 48 seconds. The facts as I see them are that a former president of the United States, instead of enjoying equal treatment with any other citizen accused of violating the law, would be cruelly and excessively penalized either in preserving the presumption of his innocence or in obtaining a speedy determination of his guilt in order to repay a legal debt to society. During this long period of delay and potential litigation, ugly passions would again be aroused and our people would again be polarized in their opinions. Reason I pulled that clip was the last part, the people being polarized and thinking oh, about what listen, the country's going through now. It, see, and the critical, what he couldn't say for obvious reasons, but which lay behind that and which is directly relevant to what we're going through now. Through back channels, i.e. Phil Buchan, who happened, by the way, to be living at the Jefferson Hotel, which is also where Leon Jaworski, the special prosecutor, was living, which made it very convenient to pass messages back and forth. Ford had asked and had been informed by Leon Jaworski that it would be at least a year and quite possibly two years before a Nixon trial could take place. That, in turn, underway the whole rationale, but in a sense, Ford couldn't say it. He implies it but he couldn't say it. Um, the, the biggest surprise to me, I didn't realize until researching the book, before he died in 1983, Leon Jaworski told at least two people, one of them was Mel Laird, that he really never intended to indict Nixon at all. That he had a staff who very much wanted to indict Nixon, but Jaworski believed, I think almost from the beginning, that Nixon couldn't get a fair trial because of obviously the publicity. Um, and one of the reasons, and it's very Fordian, one of the reasons preserved in Benny, in, in, in uh, Bunny Buchan's diary notes, in the Oval Office, Ford expresses sympathy for Leon Jaworski, and he doesn't, he doesn't want Leon Jaworski to bear the entire burden of deciding what to do with Richard Nixon. And so he'll take that burden on to himself. You said that he lived with this until 
the Profiles and Courage Award. Yeah. He, in, in 2001, the Kennedy Library, um, <coughs> remarkable, uh, you gave him the Profiles and Courage Award specifically for the Nixon pardon. And I was there that day. I'll never forget, Senator Kennedy was, could not have been more gracious saying how, in retrospect, he, he Senator Kennedy was wrong and Ford was right. Anyway, Ford said afterward, everywhere I've gone for the last 25 years, people ask the same questions. He said, after the Provost and Courage Award, they stopped asking. And so it's like in the last years of his life, it's as if he were finally able to sort of put the pardon behind him. People still, by the way, kept asking about the Warren Commission and, and, and all sorts of other conspiracies. But the pardon question, it's as if the Kennedy imprimatur had laid it to rest. Okay, digging into the book a little more, you begin and end with two stories about people that he invited to the White House. Yeah, yeah. George McCovern and Jesse Owens. Two improbable stories, in a sense, yeah. In uh, 75, George McGovern finds himself invited to a stag dinner, small, obviously, very elite, uh, at the White House. And he's frankly amazed. And he, he says to President Ford, he said, you know, Lyndon Johnson never invited me to the White House. And he said, you could be sure Richard Nixon never invited me to the White House. And Ford said, I know, George, that's why I asked you. He said, the House belongs to everyone. And, um, and interesting enough, in 1972, George McGovern voted <laughs> for Gerald Ford um, against his own party's nominee. And the, but the book ends with, a, it's bracketed, as you say, with two acts of hospitality that, that, are, that are meant to be compensatory. Um, Jesse Owens, of course, Ford knew of Jesse Owens. Ohio, Michigan, he was at the track meet uh, as a young man where Jesse Owens set three world records in one day. So he had this, this real connection of sorts. The 1976 uh, Olympic Games had just ended, and he was welcoming the American team back. But he thought it would be really special if he invited Jesse Owens. The fact is, in 1936, when Jesse Owens made history at the Berlin Games uh, in front of Hitler, he came back to the United States. There was a ticker tape parade in New York. But he was pointedly not invited to the White House, the Roosevelt White House. It was an election year. And for whatever reason, um, all the white members of the team were invited and he was not. So Ford thought this was a chance, 40 years after the fact, to compensate for a, a shameless oversight, shall we say. And it was just, it was an amazing thing because Ford, and it, with Ford it was personal, you know. Uh, and um, he obviously had enormous admiration for Owens. And Owens, it was interesting, because when Owens came back, you know, he couldn't get what you and I would regard as a job sort of commensurate with, with his accomplishments or the kind of endorsements, you know, that today would be uh, routine. Um, and, and yet, he didn't talk about any of that. He, he just talked about uh, America being this amazing country. Uh, you know, and he talked about his very modest origins. He said, today I'm, I'm shaking hands with the President of the United States. So, and I said, at the end of the book, you know, Ford introduced himself to the country when he was nominated for vice presidency as a, as a Ford, not a Lincoln. And most people were in agreement. But that day, in August of 1976, he was at least Lincolnian because he was appealing to the better angels of our nature. Who is Billy Sipple that you dedicated the book to? Um, Billy Sipple 
um, is the first of the surprises. Billy Sipple, in September 22, 1975, he was a 33-year-old honorably discharged Vietnam vet living in San Francisco who saw a crowd on the street outside the St. Francis Hotel and just out of curiosity sort of joined it. It turned out that President Ford was inside. Um, he'd given a speech and he was about to come out. Well, the Secret Service didn't like the looks of the crowd at the front of the hotel for about 3,000 people. And this was two weeks after Ford had been targeted for assassination in Sacramento, California, by Squeaky Fromm, a Charles Manson follower. A lot of people didn't want him to go to California. The Secret Service said to the president, you know, why don't you go out the back door? And by the way, this time, don't shake hands. So he said, fine. So they had the limousine drawn up. Now, the crowd, the smaller crowd that Billy Sipple was in, was only about 40 feet away from the car. Ford gets, you know, Billy Sipple noticed he was standing next to a nondescript-looking middle-aged woman with a handbag. And as Ford appeared and waved to the crowd, he, alone in this crowd, had the presence of mind to observe. She opened her handbag, pulled out a 38 Smith & Wesson, and aimed it at the president. Sipple uh, managed to deflect the bullet. You can still see the bullet hole in the, in the hotel wall. Uh, but before she could get off a second shot, a couple of San Francisco cops jumped on her. But anyway, so Billy Sipple was the hero of the day. President Ford writes him a thank you letter. The day before it arrives, the San Francisco Chronicle takes it upon itself to out Billy Sipple as gay. Now, this is 1975. His family in Michigan disowned him. And the rest of his life was pretty bleak. Um, he died at the age of 47. It was in 1989. Um, they decided he'd been dead for a couple of weeks when they found his remains. And the walls of his apartment were literally papered with the newspapers from that day. And the place of honor was a framed letter from Gerald Ford. And knowing the Fords, you know, he, um, well, th they both took part in the first A's walks out in the desert around Palm Springs. And he became the first American president to sign a gay rights petition. He told friends several years before he died in 2006 that um, same-sex marriage was coming and they should get used to it. Um, and he was certainly comfortable with the idea. It's interesting. Tom DeFrank, when he wrote his book about, called uh, Write It When I'm Gone, about based on uh, in, in conversations they had with Ford as an ex-president, he was really onto something. He said after 1980, which is when Ford's political career ended, I mean, he was still you know, a would-be candidate up to 1980, uh, and then he withdrew and let Reagan have the nomination. Um, but he said after 1980, Ford was liberated. And it's like he didn't care what he said. And I think Mrs. Ford was undoubtedly a, uh, an influence as well. He was certainly, for example, much more pro-choice than he'd ever been in the White House. And that extended to a, a number of issues. And increasingly, he and Mrs. Ford, I think, felt they were marooned. Uh, the Republican Party that, that they'd known, you know, you would call it center-right, you know, moderate, middle of the road. Um, that was increasingly uh, in the rearview mirror. In 19, and of course, people always say, okay, what would he think about today? Which is, again, it's a little bit unanswerable, but we do have a good clue because in 1980, 
he uh, sat down to an uh, interview with a reporter, Neil, um, Neil McNeil of Time Magazine, great reporter, someone he trusted implicitly. And he asked him a really interesting inverted question, which is, what's the single most disqualifying attribute in a president? And Ford thought, he said, arrogance. He said, not that the American people would ever elect an arrogant president, he said, but I'm talking vicious arrogance. He said, if they did, then God help the country. I'm going to jump around in time here, but uh, from his early years, uh, there was one person that I'd never heard of before, and it sent me to the Internet to look up even more. And you credit this woman with uh, being... Phyllis Brown. <laughs> yes, responsible for the Gerald Ford transformation from Midwestern hayseed to the junior establishment. Yeah, and that's sort of her... her terminology. Yeah, the, the words Jerry Brown and supermodel do not seem to belong in the same sentence. Gerald Ford. Gerald Ford, yeah. Mm -hmm. but, but that's in effect what Phyllis Brown, P.B. Brown, for Perfect Body Brown, uh, according to her friends, uh, was a knockout and a really, in, a really smart cosmopolitan. Um, it was Pygmalion in reverse. She exactly took the hayseed. Uh, they went to Broadway shows. They... Uh, uh, she introduced him to skiing, um, and she stole a whole lot of things. And I think uh, I found an interview that he did, uh, one of the interviews that have not been available until now, and he talked about, um, you know, she was quite a gal and on and on. Pause. Thank God I didn't marry her. Uh, she would go on to have three husbands, and I, the wonderful sequel to all of this is... Jim Cannon, who was close to the president, did an earlier book about Ford, and particularly Watergate, told me the story. He didn't use it, but he figured someday I would. Um, he was working on his book, and the president said, you ought to talk to Phyllis. And so he went to Reno, where she lived, and got roses on the way to ingratiate himself, and knocked on the door and said, President Ford wanted you to have these. She said, no, he didn't. He never gave me flowers. So anyway, they, they, they established immediate uh, trusting relationship. And at the end of the day, she said to Jim Cannon, would you mind taking a message to Jerry? And he said, no. And she said, would you tell him, I still think about him, I still dream about him, I still love him. And Cannon thought, gosh, you know, uh, am I going to repeat that to the president? Well, anyway, he went back and he did. And there was this pause. He thought maybe I'd overstepped the bounds of propriety. I don't know. Ford was thinking. And he said, well, you know, she was such a great gal. Pause. But, you know, Betty and I have had such a wonderful marriage. Well, there's the congressman. Two compliments <laughs> in the same sentence. Uh, but Phyllis Brown was a, a, a huge influence in his role. And, again, it gets back to this Yale. Um, everyone thinks, everyone associates him with the University of Michigan which is understandable. He loved the place. But Yale um, had a huge impact. New York, um, at the very same time that America First is releasing its isolationist manifesto, the same day, where is Jerry Ford? He's in Philadelphia with thousands of other young Republicans screaming, we want Wilkie, who is, of course, anything but an isolationist. And I also discovered at the same time he was actually trying to pull strings to get into the Navy. So, so 
Go figure. It, it, it's just a, a small example of, of how much more, how many more layers there are. Well, let's talk about the woman that he did marry, Betty Bloomer. Yeah. Uh, there's a quote from her, her soon-to-be sister-in-law that uh, says, yeah. Jerry's mistress will be his work. Yeah. How did that play out in, in Betty and the Ford family's life? First of all, Betty was a, a divorcee. Um, she said I was young and stupid, and she realized she made a mistake. But she really wasn't looking to get married again anytime soon. She knew... Jerry Ford, he'd been a local football hero. He was five years older than her. Um, and he was very persistent. Uh, and, and after he came back from World War II and opened a law firm, was the most eligible bachelor in town, had on average a date a week. And, but Betty was someone he was obviously uh, instantly attracted to. And he talked her into going out for a, a drink and uh, that led to this relationship. Early 1948, February of 48, he tells he wants to marry her, but he can't set a date, and he can't tell her why he can't set a date. And it turns out uh, he wants to run for Congress against a Republican incumbent, entrenched isolationist, and he wants to take him by surprise. He's not even going to tell his fiance that he's going to run for Congress. So, okay. At their wedding rehearsal dinner, he showed up for the appetizer and dessert. But in between, he was gone campaigning. And in, in many ways, to me, that's a, it's a preview of coming attractions. I don't think she had any idea when she... The, 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 the parallel, her father had been a traveling salesman. Her first husband was a traveling salesman. Arguably, her second husband was a traveling salesman because as Republican leader in the House, Ford would spend up to 200 nights a year on the road, campaigning not for himself, but for other candidates in the hope of attaining his real lifelong ambition, which was to be Speaker of the House. And the burden of all of that really fell on her. Well, we know that Betty struggled with addiction problems later, yeah. uh, recovering, and, and the two of them together forming the Betty Ford Clinic. Do you see a connection between his lifestyle and her being? Yeah, I think, uh, I think put it this way, I think he felt a measure of guilt, particularly in the later years. She actually, she was fine in the, in the White House because what had happened, remember she, as a young woman, she wanted to be a Martha Graham dancer. So she had this, what her, her, her staff referred to as her, her performer's gene. But it had been stymied all those years when, you know, she was taking kids to uh, football games and uh, the emergency room in the hospital, and, and he was, you know, out on the road. There's this harrowing, there are several harrowing scenes in the book, but one of them, Susan, who um, must have been 10 or 11 years old, uh, was alone at the house. Her father was out on the Sequoia with President Johnson. I think it was a Sunday afternoon, and the housekeeper, a remarkable woman named Clara Powell, and um, Mrs. Ford basically had a nervous breakdown. And it must have been terrifying, you know. But fortunately, Clara had the presence of mind, and they got a hold of him. But it didn't prevent him from going out on the road. And I think in later years, he did feel a measure of guilt. I think he tried to make it up to her. 
the real problem, in effect, were, we see there were two sets of issues. One was she she had, um, you know, pulled nerve, and the doctors had put her in traction for close to a month uh, without success, and then they took the shortcut. They started prescribing pills, and even the pills by themselves wouldn't have been an issue, but with alcohol, that was a serious problem. Um, so after they leave the White House, she thinks, great, I finally got my husband back. They move out to the desert in California. The kids are grown up basically by now, so they're gone. And guess what? He's back on the road. You know, the habits of a lifetime. And she's alone. And that's when the drinking became, I mean, life-threatening. And uh, it led to the intervention that is described in the book and the extraordinary um, final chapter, in effect, in their lives together. And the Betty Ford Center, he said in later years that when the history books were written, her contributions would outweigh his own. And he, I mean, he, he really believed that. Every year, the Betty Ford Center would have an alumni event and he would always say, she, she's the president. I'm just the former president. And you would find him at the grill barbecuing hot dogs. That was, that was his job. And, he, you know, he was perfectly comfortable. She got the Medal of Freedom a decade before he did. And he was so proud of her. I mean, it, it, it's, it's a really interesting, um, I mean, you, you could do a book just based on, you know, Gary and Betty. Uh, there's enough drama there. But that's hopefully incorporated in this. Our Q&A conversation will be right back after this short break. We have about 25 minutes left in our conversation. So you explained that he took on an incumbent congressman when he first ran. After he got to Congress, he took on the Republican leader, Charlie Halleck. Oh, yeah, he did. Well, Ford, what, what do we learn about him? Yeah, the thing that people, again, the, the one thing that Ford, Ford didn't mind, the klutz, I mean, he didn't mind all of that. The thing that bothered him, and he was verbal about it, was it, it, people thought he was just a, a Republican partisan. He'd entered politics as an insurgent. He and his father taking on a corrupt Republican machine that dominated not only Grand Rapids, but at one point, the state of Michigan. In 1948, he took on as, but it was for an idea. The idea was, you know, he'd been an isolationist himself before the war. The war transformed his attitude, just as it did that of his hometown hero, Arthur Vandenberg, who was his mentor. And he came out of the war a, a committed internationalist. And so it, was, it wasn't simply a primary about his own ambition to be in Congress, but it was a primary about uh, an idea. Um, and, and that insurgent gene, if you will, never went away. In 1965, after the Goldwater debacle in 64, it wasn't Charlie Halleck's fault, but people needed someone to blame, and they needed to start over. They needed a change. Um, plus, Charlie Halleck on television, it was, it was what's called the Evan Charlie Show. Once a week, Ev Dirksen, the Wizard of Ooze, with his tousled hair and, and uh, just craggy features, um, totally dominated. And Charlie Halleck, who drank, I mean, everyone drank back then. And one of the things you, you discover 
when you inhabit mentally the 60s and 70s, everyone drank. But Charlie Halleck drank more than most, and, and he looked it, and he just wasn't, you know. Anyway, Ford was a lot younger, he was a lot more telegenic, he was kind of middle of the road, slightly center right. He took on Halleck and beat him narrowly. Bob Dole delivered four votes from the Kansas delegation, and that provided his margin. And then he set about transforming the Republican Party on Capitol Hill. He hired the fur, he went out and raised $2 million and hired policy experts. He had a different philosophy about being in the minority. Bob Taft used to say the, the, the job of the opposition is to oppose. Ford's idea was, no, no, we have a better idea. Um, and so he put together, in effect, a think tank, first one, um, serving the Republican minority to come up with Republican solutions on civil rights and education and you know fighting poverty and the like. They didn't have the votes, um, but at least they had a, a program of their own. And um, the other thing that's, that's really unnoticed and I didn't realize until doing the book, Ford had his own ideas about a Southern Republican Party. I mean, this is that critical moment when the old South, the, the solid South, the Democratic South, is about to become essentially a solid Republican South, you know, over a period of several years. And the, the question was, what kind of South, what kind of Republican Party would it be, with civil rights being clearly the, the dividing line? Ford's idea was an Eisenhower Party, moderate on civil rights, uh, opposed to, quote, big government in Washington and all of that, but more uh, Eisenhower, if you will, than Goldwater, and more Lincoln than either. But the other thing was, for years, there had been an unofficial coalition. Remember, you had the Southern Democrats and Republicans would form a, co a conservative coalition. Ford wanted to transform that. He wanted to get rid of the conservative Southern Democrats and replace them with Republicans uh, of, of his liking. So he's a much more transformational figure. Oh, and one factoid, um, for better or worse, every time you see the State of the Union address followed by the opposition party response, that was Gerald Ford's idea. Um, the first one in uh, the mid-60s, Ev Dirksen thought it was a terrible idea until he saw how much applause Ford got when he did the first one and he changed his mind. He called the vice presidency the worst job he ever had. Why, why was that during well, the Well, you know, under the best of circumstances, the vice presidency is a very difficult job. Um, think of uh, men and women of both parties who have been vice president, who want to be president, and um, the difficulty they have in establishing their own independence. It, it's just the job doesn't work that way. In his case, it was the worst of times because, basically, he took that job believing Richard Nixon. He thought that Nixon was basically innocent, and it was people around Nixon, people at the campaign, uh, who were responsible for Watergate. Um, it's a very nuanced evolution. I mean, one reason why this book is 700 pages of text. Um, over those eight months, 
Ford gradually came to the conclusion that he was not being told the truth, that uh, Nixon was probably more involved, um, certainly in a cover-up, and, and he was walking a tightrope. In addition, everywhere he went, I know, because I had the kid, I introduced him in front of the Harvard Republican Club in March of 1974. I saw that author as, yeah. as, as the next president, right? Oh, oh yeah, and I'm sure I was <laughs> one of many people who, and I, I'm sure he didn't much care for that introduction. Um, but the fact is, everywhere he went, he had to defend Nixon. But he had to defend Nixon in such a way that he didn't completely destroy his own credibility or, yes, his independence. Because down the road, although he couldn't admit it, in the back of his head, he had to be aware of the fact that it could, events could transpire that he would be replacing Nixon. Mrs. Ford, you know, famously said after the East Room inaugural, she said, you know, most people have an election and, and three months. We had 24 hours. And that, that's true, that's no exaggeration. He could not publicly or even privately admit that he might be president. I talked to the, the Ford children, and, and I still find it astonishing. They may have been the only family in America in the summer of 1974 whose dinner table conversations never revolved around the possibility that there might be a new president uh, any day now, because Ford wouldn't allow it. Let's bring it to August 9th, 1974, and the, the famous address to the nation that he gave uh, uh, in his inaugural from the White House. Uh, this is a very brief clip, but I wanted to talk to you about where it came from. Hello, Americans. Our long national nightmare is over. Our Constitution works. Our great republic is a government of laws and not of men. Here, the people rule. Richard Norton Smith, you have been a speechwriter. Where did the phrase, our long national nightmare is over, come from? Well, that's a bit of a mystery, actually. Uh, after all these years, you, you'd think there'd be no doubt. Um, it's certainly always been attributed uh, to Bob Hartman, who was, in fact, the chief author of that little eight-minute non-inaugural address, inaugural address. Uh, but I found an interview with another speechwriter named Milton Friedman, not to be confused with The Economist, who claimed his, that he was responsible for the phrase. Uh, you know, who knows? Um, the irony, of course, about the whole phrase, whoever wrote it, is Ford didn't want to use it. Typical, again, Ford, Ford thought it, it, it was kicking a man when he was down. Don't you think that's a little harsh? And Hartman um, made the case, no, in effect, you don't understand, Mr. Vice President. People need to hear this. They need to hear it from you. The, the final surprise, of course, is that our long national nightmare was far from over. And I think, to, which in turn leads into the whole pardon and, and much more. Um, here we are 50 years later, we're still debating it. He brought to the White House Don Rumsfeld, who brought Dick Cheney. And of Donald Rumsfeld, you write, uh, no one uh, was more influential in he, than he in the transformation of him to the presidency. How did he help him? Gerald Ford was the child of Congress. He thought like a congressman, and his ideas of leadership were 
based on Capitol Hill, even his ideas of what a conservative and a liberal. Uh, you know, on Capitol Hill, persuasion entails two or three people behind closed doors, uh, broken sentences. You, you, know, you don't have to be eloquent. It's an entirely different mindset and, and a set of job qualifications, if you will, when you become an executive. Um, and Rumsfeld understood that. He understood that instinctively, even though he himself had been on Capitol Hill. And I argue, whatever you think of, of Rumsfeld, uh, or the later Rumsfeld, Rumsfeld was Ford's teacher more than anyone else the first few months about the difference between congressional leadership and executive leadership. Now that said, Rumsfeld is also candid. He told me um, he was to the right of Ford. He thought that Nelson Rockefeller was a wrong choice for vice president. He thought that Ford should have cleaned house. Um, again, Bill Simon, Secretary of Treasury, second day of Ford's presidency, comes to him and says, uh, offers his resignation and says, you ought to get rid of all of us. Ford's response was, nobody leaves the plane without a parachute. Ford being Ford, he looked around, he saw all of these White House people who had nothing to do with Watergate, who were in many cases very capable, very competent people, um, who should not be blamed in effect. Well, it raises a really interesting question that you don't hear very often about the American presidency. Uh, can a president be too nice and insufficiently ruthless? And I think uh, Hartman, Rumsfeld, Ford is like, you know, Dwight Eisenhower. Uh, everyone thinks about the smile, and the smile was real. But he also had Sherman Adams as his chief of staff to, to, to do the, the, the heavy lifting and be the bad guy. Uh, in effect, the role that Holderman performed, you know, for Nixon. Ford seeing the best in everyone. There are people who wondered why he kept Hartman on. Hartman was a divisive figure. He drank. Um, but he also, Hartman saw the worst in people. So Hartman completed Ford as a politician. And he was also someone, not the only one, but he was someone who could tell the president when he was full of it. And that's an invaluable role. And it tells you a lot about Ford, that he valued having people around him who could speak that frankly. 1976 primary challenge from Ronald Reagan. Was he ready for it? I don't think so. I think he had, the, well, uh, the, uh, the great Lou Cannon, who covered both men, said Ford could never get in his head that he wasn't sufficiently conservative to be the Republican Party nominee in 1976. The party was changing literally all around him. I mean, Ford kept reading in the newspapers that he was the most conservative president since Calvin Coolidge. And he thought, very much shaped by his experience on the Hill, that he was the most electable. He was the most conservative, electable Republican in 1976. He couldn't see, you know, the Reagan phenomenon eluded him. Uh, and it turned out to be an incredibly uh, bitter uh, battle um, on the, the likes of the Eisenhower Taft or, or T.R. Taft in 1912, but a defining moment. I mean, I would argue that 76, in effect, put the Republican Party on a course um, from which it's 
Well, he never deviated. But yet in 1980, there was a consideration of him joining the ticket. That's why whenever people say, let Reagan be Reagan, I always think, you know, which Reagan are we talking about? The Reagan who in 1976 was willing to put um, Schweiker, Dick Schweiker, the most liberal Republican in the Senate as his running mate, or four years later was willing to put Gerald Ford uh, as his running mate. I mean, it tells you a lot about Reagan's pragmatism and um, big tent Republicanism, if you will, that he was willing to let bygones be bygones. And uh, he was interested in winning. And he, he went, first of all, he went to see Ford in Rancho Mirage a couple weeks before the convention. And Ford was taken aback uh, and suggested George H.W. Bush. Anyway, the whole story uh, is told here in detail. But the, the, the one of the, again, it gets to this mysterious quality about Ford. Because at the end of the week, Ford uh, gets to the private plane. It's going to take him back to Vail from the Detroit convention. And he says, he, he leans back, said, well, I had a pretty good convention. He said, he gave a good speech. And he says, and I got George Bush as vice president. I think that there was a little bit of payback for 76, that Ford let this thing go on all week to the point where in the end, Reagan had almost no choice but to go to his second choice, who was George H.W. Bush. We have five, <clears throat> five minutes left, excuse me. Um, you, you talked about the many good works that the Ford as a couple did in their retirement yeah. years. At the same time, he joined 10 corporate boards and yes. there was some description of him as Jerry Ford, Inc. Yes. How did he square that away with his- It, it really bothered him. Uh, we, we talked to a number of people who were on boards with him. Um, he did his homework. Um, uh, he never, you know, he was never a rainmaker. He, uh, he didn't do that. Um, it's interesting, he wouldn't join a board until 1980. Uh, and that was when his political career, in effect, came to an end. He'd left the White House with almost no money. And again, we talked about feelings of guilt. I think he was uh, determined at that point to make up for all that lost time and make sure that his, his wife and his children would be taken care of. Um, he also had, people forget, one of the first things he was told when he left office, one of the things that brought him and Jimmy Carter together, they say, oh, oh, and by the way, you know you have to raise 15, 20 million dollars to build a library. Nobody told him that. Most of his speaking fees went to the Ford Foundation to help build the, the Ford Library and the museum. But the boards, it's, it's interesting when you stop to think about the boards, because I, I'm, I don't defend it. I think you could, um, certainly you could argue it both ways. And there was a lot of criticism of him, in effect, cashing in on the presidency. Um, but in many ways, it's an extension of the kind of you know, free enterprise, business-oriented, country club Republican, if you will, that he had been throughout his career. And he brought, um, what does I say, we, we talked to, to people on some of the boards. One example, um, he was on a, a board, and the, the Kuwaiti, Kuwait bought this oil company, and uh, they were meeting with the Kuwaiti oil minister who said they were having monthly meetings and the Kuwaiti oil minister said, well, we're gonna cut it to four times a year and we're gonna increase your director's fee from 25 to 100,000. And Ford interrupts and says, well, that's awfully generous, Ali, but you know, since we're doing fewer meetings and so on and so on, I think we'll just 
we'll keep it at $25,000. Who's going to object, you know? So um, he died worth probably, the best estimates, 10 to $15 million. The thing he was proudest of was the house in Rancho Mirage that they built and the, the ski chalet that they built in Vail. Neither one had a mortgage. We have a 42-second clip of President Clinton in 1999 giving him the Medal of Freedom. It can encapsulates his accomplishments, so let's yeah. listen. Steady, trustworthy, Gerald Ford ended a long national nightmare. He also ended a long and bitter war. And he signed the Helsinki Treaty on Human Rights that sent a signal of hope to people throughout the world and hasten the fall of communism. When he left the White House after 895 days, America was stronger, calmer, and more self-confident. America was, in other words, more like President Ford himself. Given all that, why did you title your biography of him An Ordinary Man? Well, it's ironic, and the subtitle is equally important. Uh, the fact that uh, there are surprising things about, we think of him as an ordinary man. He referred to himself as an ordinary man. Um, but it turns out his life was anything but ordinary. Um, his presidency was anything but ordinary. So the reader in the end can make up their own minds. But I thought a little bit of irony on the front cover would be, uh, would be appropriate. You knew him very well when you started this project. Did you? Not as well as I thought I did. That's him. what I was going to ask you. Did you know him any better by the time you were done? Yeah, and you know, and so many times as I was, you know, this 10 years of slogging through archives and interviewing people, and over and over, every day, I would think, God, why didn't I ask him this or this? And there are things that I don't know and will never know that are in the book, and I don't know whether he knew. For example, I don't think he knew that J. Edgar Hoover had blackballed him at FBI camp. He had a bigamist step-grandfather, uh, and I don't know even now whether he, in fact, knew all the details of that relationship. Um, someone who seems to us like an open book turns out, by the end of the book, to be um, I think much more interesting, um, much more complicated, and um, this is far from the last word on Gerald Ford. Presidential historian and biographer Richard Norton Smith, thank you for the hour. Oh, thank you. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email about Q&A at podcasts at c-span.org. Send me your questions, your comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome. 